Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. Good day, everyone. This is Mick Patterson. Uh, I am the Ambassador of Innovation and Collaboration with the Facade Tectonics Institute. We are going to discuss a very interesting topic, Passive House, today. And we have a couple of uh, leading voices uh, in in the conversation about Passive House uh, and in the practice of Passive House in North America. Really uh, looking forward to this uh, discussion. First, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Facade Tectonics. We are a nonprofit member organization focused on all things building skin. We're an institute that was developed in recognition of the great importance the, 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 the building skin plays in the goals that we're uh, trying to achieve with the built environment in terms of sustainability and resilience, energy performance, uh, you know, this kind of thing. There's, in addition to the fact that there's really nothing that combines attributes of both appearance and performance like the building skin, we've recognized that the building skin is really the linchpin to attaining these goals for resilience and sustainability in the built environment and urban habitat, in buildings and urban habitat. And, you know, the Institute is, like I said, member-based. We have both organizational members and individual members. We have, we're very active. We have a number of committees. The Institute itself is a very diverse organization, very deliberately so. We have a very interesting mission. Check out uh, the mission on our our newly launched website at www.facadetectonics.org. There's a couple of unique things I want to mention about that mission. It's, we're all about inclusiveness. We're really trying to reach out uh, with a broad-based and engage a broad-based demographic. The usual the, the usual uh, suspects of architects and engineers and consultants and f- facade contractors, of course, but also, uh, you know, building owners, uh, facilities engineers, uh, you know, these, you know, the preservation community. Um, we recognize the fact that, that our industry is uniquely fragmented. And what we're really trying to do is bridge these various fragments in a very robust dialogue and in an effort that goes beyond dialogue to really, uh, really begin to catalyze transformative change uh, in the building industry. So I encourage you to visit the website. A lot more information there about what we're up to. A big part of the website is part of the mission of the Institute, which is to create a level platform for knowledge sharing in our industry, which our industry has been notoriously very bad at over the years. Uh, so we're trying to change that, create a place where we can share these, um, share information, share knowledge. Uh, we are a research and education-based organization, and we can use all the help we can get. So if this uh, rings any bells with you, take a look at our membership membership uh, section on the website and consider joining us either as an individual or encouraging your organization to join. So let's get on with a discussion about this really interesting topic of Passive House. We have, like I said, two really strong voices in this area with us today. Uh, And I'd like to um, first introduce Lois Arena. Hi, Lois. How are you today? 
Good, thank you. Good, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Lois is with Stephen Winter Associates um, in Boston. Am I right about that? We have uh, four offices, Boston, Connecticut, New York, and DC. Right, okay. Uh, and she is the Director of Passive House Services, so the absolutely perfect person to have uh, in, this, in this conversation here, and I'm really excited about you, your participation, Lois. Uh, Lois is uh, uh, the Director of Passive House Services. She's, she's been at this for over 25 years. Um, she uh, has uh, included in her background applied research in condensing boiler technology. Uh, there's, that's, that's pretty unique, Lois. I, I imagine that you, uh, that you haven't run into a lot of people in the industry with that same kind of background. <laughs> and whole house ventilation strategies and the moisture performance of higher value walls. So uh, perfect background for what you're doing. Um, and also with us today, uh, we have Spencer Colhane with uh, Shuko USA uh, in New York City. Uh, hi, good day to you, Spencer. Good day, Mick. I just want to thank you for this. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, thank you for, for participating. Uh, Spencer, uh, recently, um, um, uh, after working at Shuka for a number of years, actually recently just went back to Europe uh, and um, got an advanced degree, Master of Engineering, uh, with a, a specialization in facade design, facade design and computational design. Uh, at the university at Detmold, and I won't, I won't pronounce that. I'll let you do that, Spencer. It's University of Oswestfalen Lippa. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, you know, I, uh, one of the things that 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 I would like to hear a little bit. Why don't we start out this? So so I've done. Uh, I mean. Spencer, Spencer is, uh, is, has been with Shuko for a number of years uh, prior to uh, this education. He's with them now. He works out of the virtual construction lab in New York City, which is an absolutely fascinating place. Uh, and there is uh, research going on there and, you know, uh, virtual reality research and some really interesting stuff, plus uh, uh, samples of Shuko's product uh, catalog there that uh, are available to see really interesting sections, um, parallel uh, pop-out windows, uh, you know, some, some really cool stuff. It's a great place to visit. I strongly encourage any of you that are, are interested to, you know, to get a hold of Spencer and arrange for a tour of the virtual construction lab. Um, but uh, uh, both uh, Lois and Spencer can, can introduce themselves better than I can. Uh, so if there's anything that I've missed that uh, is important to add, you guys uh, do it. But why don't we kick off this conversation? Spencer, I'm really interested in, you know, one of the things that we're involved with at the Institute is education. Uh, we have a, a very robust education committee. Um, uh, uh, Isla Aksamija uh, with... Um, uh, working with both Perkins and Will, but as an academic uh, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, I think it is, uh, it just took over as chair of our uh, education committee. We've got a bunch of um, very active uh, luminaries in the industry that are involved in the education committee. So we're 
you know, we are currently very excited about what they're uh, what they're working on. But one of those things, one of the things that comes up is the fact that everybody points to the fact that you know we have yet to have an advanced degree program uh, in North America that focuses on the building skin. Uh, and whereas there are several uh, in Europe, uh, and uh, Detmold was one of them. So, Spencer, why don't you give us a, a, a brief, uh, in a nutshell, version of the educational program that you went through, and then sort of um, uh, lead into an intro of Passive House and what it's all about, uh, assuming that at least some of the people uh, that are uh, listening to this podcast are unfamiliar with Passive House. Absolutely. So my, my interest in going back to school, specifically in Germany, came about from working in the facade industry. And I have a background in architecture. Uh, my undergraduate degree um, was studying architectural design. And I, since graduating, had worked in the facade industry, being exposed to a lot of the means and methods of design and engineering that are coming out of Europe working for Shuko, and that curiosity drove me to try and find the sources for advancing my understanding, higher education, that were focused on the niche of our, of my, let's say, industry of you know, facade design and engineering. And typically in the U.S., you see this as something that's an offshoot of structural engineering or at times mechanical engineering. But rarely is there anything uh, in terms of formal coursework that focuses on the facade as the primary subject. So um, I went to Germany um, really because the, the program there was focused on an international student base. So even though it was based in Germany, all the coursework was in English. And the, the entire focus of that was to create this, this curriculum that people from all over the world could attend to and then go out into the industry from and work in multiple locations in this kind of global context of, you know, facade engineering practice. So my, my time there was really focused on, you know, trying to understand, um, you know, some of the, the principles and the techniques that are being developed really in Germany in terms of engineering, fabrication, system design, and then thinking about how that could be applied back in the United States um, with the work that we're doing, Shuka's doing here, specifically in New York, with like design assist projects, system development, um, looking at bringing energy efficiency to the forefront of a lot of what we're trying to do in our projects. And, and that, that curriculum is a bit unique in Germany in that way that the main focus is on principles of facade design and how they apply to, you know, all aspects of um, climate-focused design and um, fabrication planning and um, even looking at different materials and how they come together. So sort of a blend of architectural design and building science, uh, but not too heavily based in either. And, and that's what led me there. And really the, the journey to that um, starts a bit further back when I was in college and is actually where... I met Lois for the first time, and that was in the Passive House uh, Designers Training Program that that we both went through uh, starting in 2009, I believe, Lois. So since then, um, you know, this whole topic of Passive House has been a big focus of what I've been doing in my career, and 
And it's really important because the, the, main, the main goal of the criteria is to respond to, um, you know, the climate crisis. It's, it's, it's all about how do we take buildings that are consuming, you know, an exorbitant amount of energy from non-renewable resources and reduce that, that carbon footprint. Uh, how do we reduce the amount of energy consumption that our building stock has? And the criteria itself is, is written as like an international standard. So no matter where you are, no matter where the project is located, the focus is on responding to the climate that you're building that project and trying to make the most energy efficient building that you can without implementing, you know, let's say a lot of gizmos, you know, you're following passive principles. And this is really broken down into some key criteria um, that focuses primarily on reducing energy demand. So energy for heating, for cooling, and the primary energy that the building consumes. And this is accomplished also by looking at predominantly the facade of the building. A large portion of the success of this project looks at air tightness and uh, a thermal envelope that's optimized for the climate. So it's these concepts that, that kind of define the, the passive house uh, approach. And specifically, what's different about passive house from other, let's say, sustainable or green building certification programs is that the criteria for achieving passive house certification is based on metrics. It's based on the performance data and the performance outcome of, of what you're designing. So it's not necessarily based on, um, you know, criteria related to uh, you know, social responsibility or even necessarily material sourcing. It's really, it's, it's an energy equation in large part that looks at setting a metric for annual heat demand, cooling demand, primary energy, an air, air tightness flow rate through the building envelope, and a thermal criteria for the building envelope. And so it's with this, this metric, let's call it, and that the passive house approach differentiates itself from other certification programs and, and really is, is something that doesn't have a bias towards, you know, what, whatever, um, whatever sort of social uh, influence you might have from whatever, you know, region of the world you're building in. It's just looking at, here's the performance criteria that we need to meet. We're not really dictating how you meet it necessarily. We're just saying that these are the bars that you have to jump over. And, and that kind of in a nutshell is, is what the pass fast criteria is about. Um, you know, Lois, feel free to jump in and offer some perspective. But um, what's interesting about this is, is how it really relates to the facade directly and how the facade plays such a large role in in this overall equation how it's kind of integral or you could say like the foundation to the success of this method what is did your educational program at that mold specifically address passive house in any way well the interesting thing is the the program i went to was in germany and this whole standard um, the passive house building standard was developed in germany uh, in the 1990s um, by the Pastor House Institute in Darmstadt. And it has since become uh, the basis for um, a lot of the new construction uh, requirements across the board in the building code in Germany. So it, 
was it part of the program? I mean, the simple answer is, is yes, absolutely. The, the thinking and the approach is part of the program because in that particular country, um, passive house is is the norm. It is the standard, right? There's these principles are required for new construction projects that are that are happening right now. Uh, whereas to counterpoint that here in the U.S., we see this criteria as a goal that you know, um, ambitious planners and clients and uh, engineers are striving to achieve with their projects in Germany, it's, it's what you have to do. Right. So, so in that way, the fundamental criteria, like I said, it's based on, it's based on performance metrics. And a lot of that is influenced by sort of the, the genre of climate specific design or climate responsive design, let's say. So those, those principles of, designing facade systems that respond to the climate that they're placed in was absolutely part of the program. Um, that I, I get it. In. I, get it. I yeah. see. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, Lois, you've been involved in a number of projects, quite a few at this point, an impressive list, including the house at Cornell tech. Uh, I've got a lot of questions, but, um, uh, what what do you have to add uh, to what Spencer's laid out in terms of sort of a basic overview of Passive House for those of us who are not uh, familiar in depth with uh, with the standard? Sure. Um, I think Spencer did a great job of, of explaining it. What I do when I talk to people, because we're mostly not talking to engineers when we're talking, right? We're talking to architects and lay people. So I like to say that, you know, those metrics that Spencer's referring to, I, I like to refer to them as budgets. You're given an energy budget per square foot of your building, and you just can't exceed that. And that sort of drives it home for people. Oh, okay, I have a cap, and I can design what I need to design as long as I can keep under that cap. So um, that's sort of what I like to do. And I think the very interesting thing about Passive House is that the basis of it is based on a comfort standard. And so when you look at comfort, occupant comfort in different climates and what that means for the facade, you wind up with this super efficient building envelope, which handles the energy, it handles comfort, and it handles durability concerns as well. So not only does the, the standard address energy concerns, but it also addresses those other two, comfort and durability, which make for a really great product. I mean, one of the, one of the attributes of the Passive House standard seems to be um, that it's pretty simple in terms of the constraints that are applied, right? It's relatively easy to understand. It's not, there's not a whole bunch of things that you have to do. There, there are just a handful of constraints that really drive uh, the design and execution of a building. Um, so it allows for, in a certain respect, a lot of flexibility, but those constraints also impose some, <laughs> some, I guess, uh, limitations, maybe, uh, I'm not sure that's the right word, uh, uh, some particular kind of practices or whatever, uh, you know, on the execution of the building. Right. And, and comfort is one of those, right? So they don't want the surface of the facade, any, any of the interior surfaces to be colder than, say, seven and a half degrees difference from your interior air temperature. So if I'm at 68 degrees inside, my surface temperature on the inside of my window can't be colder than 61. So that criteria drives your windows to a certain level of efficiency. Um, 
and and that changes depending on where you are, what your climate is. So the colder the, the temperature, the more stringent your air your window requirements are. So uh, yeah, that's one of the things that that sort of uh, guides the the design. Um, the other thing is there's a, a requirement for mechanical ventilation. Fresh air has to be supplied to all living spaces and, and sleeping areas, and then um, exhausted from. Uh, the, the stale air gets exhausted from any bathrooms, kitchens, any wet rooms like that. So that is one of the design principles that has to be followed. And so if you're in a colder climate, you need to install something like uh, referred to as an energy or heat recovery ventilator. Um, in warmer climates, not necessarily. It depends on where you are in the country. So, right, there are certain principles that do drive the design and what needs to get included. So Passive House is, it, it's not... It's not, you know, the passive house is maybe a little bit misleading uh, because um, you do employ typically in in a passive house building active uh, ventilation systems and even though they're smaller, uh, active heating and cooling. Am I right about that? Correct. The, The passive part is we're dealing with the envelope first, right? And then so that we can make those mechanical systems as small and simple as possible. And the, the, so yeah, that's one of the big, uh, the big defining characteristics, I think, of Passive House is the, the air tightness requirements. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's actually one of the most daunting, Spencer, please jump in if, you, if you'd like to. It's one of the most daunting things for project teams when they first hear about it. And it's one of the things that stresses them out the most. But honestly, once you detail it for them, it's just more about proper planning and detailing and inspections than it is about different techniques, right? You can use almost all of the same materials you use in standard construction. It's just about more careful implementation of that air barrier. Um, so it's it's once they get it, once they get it down, it's really not it's not that big a deal. But it does seem to to scare people quite a bit at first. Yeah, the house at Cornell. Now that's that is not uh, not a conventional curtain wall type system, right? Is that still the tallest uh, uh, application of Passive House? No. Uh, Spain took us over back in March. Okay. <laughs> Cornell's 26 stories and the, the uh, tower in Spain is 28. But there's ones that are coming that are even taller from Vancouver and China. They're going to blow us all out of the water pretty soon. So, so my, you know, my question is coming from a, you know, a curtain wall background on the contracting side, uh, you know, the, the design build side, um, uh, are there, are there what I would call conventional curtain wall systems that, uh, can comply with passive house standards? Do they exist? Have they been executed? Um, well, I guess Spencer would have a lot to say about this, but we are yeah. working on a project in Boston that is, um, there's about 800,000 square foot of office space, uh, 21 stories of it that are being done with conventional curtain wall. We're just um, working with the curtain wall manufacturer to detail it and to, you know, reduce any thermal bridging that we can. But yes, you can use conventional curtain wall. Um 
manufacturers. It just is going to require some extra thermal analysis with them at the beginning. So, you know, yeah. with, the, with, the, with the, yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, uh, yes, go ahead, Spencer, please. Well, I, I just wanted to, to add to that, that um, a lot of that, uh, to answer that question, it, it's, a lot of it's driven by two big factors. And one is the, the type of building, right? The location of the building as well, like the climate and the type of the building have a huge impact on what kind of facade system you will be able to qualify to meet the requirements in this criteria. So there are definitely systems that have been around for a long time, both European and domestic North American systems um, that can do this. But the question then becomes, where is the project located? And, mm -hmm. and what are the goals? Because even though there's there's this comfort criteria defined, there's this you know, energy demand criteria defined, really what it relates to is the overall composition of the building. Because as, as the, the building gets larger, or depending on the site exposure that you have for passive thermal gains, or depending on what's happening inside the building with internal uh, energy gains, the, the U-value requirement for the facade and the function of the facade can vary radically and that can really that really informs what is op like what the option is for what kind of system you can use um, I guess the, the simplest way to say it is the technology is definitely there we have the means to do this that is absolutely true um, what it's really about is finding the right suppliers finding the right partners who can curtail the product if it needs to be to meet the criteria for that particular project Right. And okay. the limitations of that come from like the site constraints and where the building is and how big it is, right? These are all factors. So. Right. Mm -hmm. And I have a question about that that, that I want to ask, but, but let, me, let me back up just a second. Does, does this mean what you just said? Does it mean that uh, a building that is uh, square in plan, okay? Uh, for example, uh, multi-story building square in plan would have an advantage over like a narrower rectangular shape plan that would have a higher uh, surface area um, per uh, overall square footage. Did, did I ask? Yeah, that? essentially the one of the one. Yeah, of course. Like that surface area to volume ratio is is always important, but equally important is what's the usage, what's the function in that space, and and how is that being accounted for towards achieving certification. Um, you know, th there's kind of a simple, uh, very watered down comparison you can make that it will be far easier to achieve a passive house level project and certification of that project for a residential building if you have multiple dwelling units that are sharing um, one larger volume as opposed to individual dwelling units that are separated out like single family homes, mm -hmm. right? Because you, you're able to uh, consolidate the, uh, you're able to consolidate the energy generation and gains into that one larger um, building and reduce that surface area to volume of the exterior envelope. But that's interesting. I think where things be, yeah, and that and that's the res, kind of the residential comparison we could say. Well, like, I'm interested in really how these how these things drive uh, design. You know how they yeah. manifest in the formal aspects of uh, of mm -hmm. buildings. 
The general rule is that the larger the building, generally, the easier passive house is as far as the skin goes. Um, and the more occupants per square foot, the easier it is as far as the skin goes. So it does account for the density of occupancy. Yes. Interesting. What about uh, what about um, solar gain? Has a huge impact. Okay, so that's yeah. that. That's a predominant criteria too. So you, uh, there is, uh, there are strategies employed to try and optimize the impact of solar gain. Correct. So, in in um, in even in the Northeast here, uh, we are a heating dominated climate. Most of our projects from Stephen Winner are large scale, highly dense projects. So cooling tends to dominate these projects, even in a heating dominated climate. So we're actually not so worried about um, solar gain in the winter as much as we are in the summer here. Mm. Um, but even, even at that, internal gains tend to dominate cooling in these buildings. So um, yes, by all means, uh, solar is uh, is accounted for in the heating and cooling thresholds that we uh, have to uh, abide by for passive house. Um, but internal gains actually drive these larger buildings. For smaller buildings, single family home, solar gain becomes really key and managing that becomes really key for comfort. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, it makes sense. Yeah, there's, there's, there's sort of a, a, a kind of more rough perspective you could have on it that at a certain scale with a certain function of the building, the windows start to function as a big part of like the heating system or the glazing, let's say, right? Because you're really relying on that passive solar gain to, to make up for, you know, the minimal, um, the minimal heating you know, system that you might have that would otherwise be conventional that you've then reduced to something very, very small, right, for the same size building. Now this, again, is, is so driven by the function and mm -hmm. the location and the form factor, but I think the big distinction for, and the big thing to be aware of, especially as it relates to facade design, is that usually solar heat gain is not like a big, um, area of, of review and contention on most you know, domestic facade projects, there's criteria certainly that comes from you know, energy analysis or some code requirements. But with Passive House, you're really looking at that solar heat gain as a major factor in the overall equation of the energy flow in and out of the building. And, and it's much more heavily scrutinized and accounted for in the modeling of that building than you otherwise normally would. So uh, the, the, the I, I want to ask you, you are, Spencer, uh, an expert in, in doors and windows. So I want to, I want to talk about that. But first I want to ask, I want to ask this question uh, about um, glazed area. You know, one of my favorite topics, <laughs> you know, it's like, there's always, you know, uh, you know, cyclically there's some, uh, Bruja that emerges in in the industry, uh, most recently with Mayor De Blasio uh, pointing at all the glass towers in New York City and saying, "You know, we got to stop doing this. We're not going to do it anymore." And you know, he backed down from that pretty quickly. But it 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 
did the most recent stir of uh, particularly the glass industry. Uh, but how does that how, how does that factor into a uh, I, I would you know my I, I have not been involved in a passive house project, but I would guess that the uh, the passive house constraints are going to really put a lot of pressure on the amount of glass that you have in the building skin. Either of you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I can, I can definitely comment on this because I, I think it's important to make like a, a distinction right off the bat, which is that the, the type, the, the typology of an all glass building really doesn't like do justice to the amount of variation and nuance and, and, the possibilities that we have currently to, you know, create energy efficient envelopes that are predominantly transparent. I mean, it, it's something that has been explored uh, to a great extent with double skin facades to try and, you know, improve the U value of an assembly that's predominantly glass, right? And there, there's definitely means and methods to achieve, um, you know, an all glass building that, you know, again, depending on the constraints, could achieve passive house certification. But the question is really, is that cost effective? I think that's the more important distinction is that, you know, there's there's technology available to do this. There are methods available to do this, to improve the U value of that assembly, you know, to mitigate the, the heat flow through it and the, and the heat gain coming in um, with shading strategies. But when you, when you look at what you're, creating to, to achieve that using a transparent envelope, it's probably not the most cost-effective option by a huge margin, right? Um, right. And, I, and I think that's the more important distinction that we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be saying that all glass buildings are bad. We should be focusing on the performance, right? Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's really more about the performance. I, I, you know, I, I love the way that constraints can drive change. You know, we, we're having a hard time changing. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're gridlocked by vested interests, you know, and, and this is what, this is what, you know, not having been involved in passive house, this is what I like about passive house because it embraces a few, a handful of key constraints that drive a different way of thinking about buildings, you know, a building and how to execute the building and, and this kind of thing. And that's what, that's what, and how, however that manifests, you know, I mean, it's a, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. Definitely. I well, always ask you, people, what, you, what is your, uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, that's okay. You know, we, we see buildings as high as 40, 40% glazing and things like that too. It's, it's, doable. It all depends on orientation and the other factors in the building and the use and everything. But what I like to do is drive around and look at all glass buildings and look at the percentage of shades that are drawn most of the time. So while people say they want glass buildings, I don't really think they do. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird social phenomenon. I'll tell you, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, and the, and the other part of that is, did the architect anticipate that aesthetic, you know, with all the shades kind of partially drawn and, you know, right. yeah, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I so, know. So, uh, so, Spencer, you know, I want to get back for, for a second to doors and windows. Uh, Shuko uh, is definitely recognized as uh, playing a, a global leadership role in high-performance uh, door and window and facade systems. Um, I know, I, I believe that, that 
so you can certify products to passive house standards. This is this is part of the passive house program. Is that correct? That that's correct. And this this product certification um, is is really something that was developed and implemented to. I think ease the burden on the designer and the planner of the project in being able to decide and and implement a product that they know achieves the comfort criteria for this this set of constraints or achieves a certain level of performance, uh, in terms of thermal performance, um, in the way that it's installed and in the way the frame is put together. And we certainly, like Shuko, has a long, you know, history of having products certified and even developing our systems towards eligibility of certification. But I would, I would caution to to kind of put all of the the credibility into a certified product because at the end of the day, uh, all the certification is really telling you about that product is that it achieves a certain performance uh, criteria. That that the frame has a U value. That the installation method of that frame um, has a, a conductivity value that is applicable to the pass-fail criteria. And you know, depending on the projects and the complexity, this can be a really useful thing because instead of having to spend the time to you know do a therm model of a window section with the, the project-specific glass and spacer and installation materials at the perimeter edge and wall assembly, if there's the right type of product mix that is all based on certified components, you can use those with a certain simplicity towards achieving certification, right? It eases the burden on, on figuring all that out. And, and that's, really, that's really the value of the certification. And it also gives you know, manufacturers uh, something to stretch for, you know, to reach for, to like a, a badge of pride in some cases. But we find that especially when we're dealing with larger projects, um, the certification or the certified product is not really the most important attribute. It's really a qualification that the product meets the comfort criteria. And like we've repeated a few times now, that that's all dependent upon the climate, the orientation and the, the kind of conditions of the project, the perimeter construction around the opening. So, but what it what it means is that to really make sure that your your window or your door, or your curtain wall meets the criteria, you you have to do a lot of thermal analysis of those systems of the project specific systems. And what I like about the certification and what I think is powerful on a component level for windows. Um, it really puts to the to the forefront some of these parameters that we very rarely see in the United States in in the facade industry. It's very rare to be working on a project and you know have someone ask about the thermal bridge at your installation detail of your window because it's not a it's not a criteria. It's not something that NFRC cares about. Right. It's typically not something that's picked up in, in more um, kind of generic energy models of buildings, but it can have a huge impact in a passive house application because it's a change in U value that's very dramatic or a change in conductivity, let's say, uh, between the frame and the adjacent wall. And, and this comfort criteria relates to interior surface tension. 
temperatures like Lois mentioned, but another big concern is uh, mold growth and condensation. Because any time that you're dealing with assemblies that are you know, very well insulated, and you're dealing with the transitions between different materials, there's always that risk that you have, you know, a super high performance frame and then a high performance wall. And then in between them is, you know, a half inch airspace. Right. right. That's and actually at one, certain one times of the, of the year. Yeah. So, so it's, it's ahead, pointing to that issue and saying, this is something that you need to make sure you're accounting for in your planning. Otherwise, it could lead to problems down the road. Yeah, yeah. This is, I wanted to ask, actually, I wanted to ask Lois about this. Lois, you know, I, I, I know one of the big uh, considerations in envelope design these days, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I, I see different people saying different things. It's, you know, it's the, it's the moisture barrier, the condensation problem, you know, this problem. Uh, and, you know, and there's, there is yet to be, you know, like a sort of general convergence on what works where, uh, at least from what I've seen. What is your take on, does Passivos address these issues? Are you comfortable with that, this moisture condensation thing with the Passive House projects you've been involved with? Oh, absolutely. Um, the the attention to detail that we are required to to take uh, as consultants, um, we have to do thermal models of all connections in the building, anywhere where you have a material changing from material to material, like a, a corner, um, roof to a wall, a window to a wall, all of those connections get put through a thermal calculation, and we look at what the temperatures are. So it we have very, very strict uh, requirements to make sure there are no condensation and uh, moisture problems in the in the assemblies. Do, do you um, use Wolfie modeling? Um, I use Wolfie model for interior moisture considerations. We're typically looking at inside the facade assembly itself. Um, when we're looking at mold and, and condensation concerns for passivals, we're actually looking at the interior surface of the facade. So the interior surface of the window or the wall or those connections, things like that. So if I'm concerned that I might have some vapor transfer inside a wall and there's a cold spot that I'm worried about inside my wall, then I'll use Wolfie for that sometimes. Um, but I, I feel very confident that most of the times um, we, are, we are covered for condensation problems. I will say there are uh, exceptions to that rule. And that comes from when the occupants have very, very, very high moisture loads. Um, and I've been into, I've been in passive house buildings where there's a lot of people in that building, in that small area, right? Five or six people in a thousand or less square feet, lots of showering, lots of cooking. And the interior moisture level is much, much higher than you would find in a normal in a normal passive house, in a normal home. Like I'm talking 60% relative humidity, right? Mm. There's not a lot of thermal envelopes, no matter how good that can handle that type of humidity in the winter. <laughs> so th that you have to handle through ventilation and proper management of the interior moisture. Um, but for the most part, the passive house facade, the passive house standard, pretty much ensures you're not going to have condensation potential as long as that interior moisture doesn't get to those unique conditions, what I was just talking about. So you 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 mentioned uh, the level of detail, design detail. Uh, I'm curious uh, as to how that level of detail 
translates through the supply chain. In other words, if you've got that level of detail in your in your design, you're going to have to have that level of detail in the procurement, fabrication, and installation uh, processes as well, right? So, you know, how big of an issue is that right now? I mean, Passive House has got some traction in uh, in Canada, but it's still very much an emerging kind of thing in the U.S. Is it a challenge, uh, uh, Lois, to, to uh, actually implement these projects? Um, of course. It's a challenge because, you know, until probably the last year or so, we, we every every contractor, every sub was new to Passive House, right? They, they had never seen it before. Now we're get, starting to get repeat um, builders and subs, but before it was first time for everything. So it starts in design with the architect. You make sure it's detailed properly. Then you go to bid buy meetings and make sure people understand what they're actually buying as far as air leakage and, and, and materials go. And then the level of inspection and testing that happens, especially at the beginning of the project, is very, very high and, and intensive. Um, and so we're verifying and we're taking pictures and we're testing. And this is all part of a requirement to get a, a project certified. So to get it certified, you have to have all the proper documentation and photo proof that it was done properly. So you're sort of, if you're going for certification, you're sort of ensuring that what you've designed is actually going to go into the building. There's sort of a built-in commissioning process. Correct. Yeah, interesting. Uh, how do they do that? How do they like, for example, the air, uh, the air tightness is, is it blower door testing or, uh, yeah. so it's, it gets, uh, it changes quite a bit the larger the project you're on. So for single family home, yes, it's blower door testing. And you can do that once the air barrier is in place, even before any insulation is in, once the windows are in and your air barriers in, boom, you can put a blower door on and see if you've missed anything. So you, your walls are wide open for repair if you need to. As the projects get taller and bigger, you start to run into sequencing issues because they might be drywalling on the lower levels before they're done insulating or sealing on the upper levels, right? There, there's not one point in that building where you're going to be able to just put a blower door on. Everyone's going to stop what they're doing and your air barrier is intact. So we wind, you wind up developing interim testing procedures where you can test the first windows that go in to make sure that the contractors have it down. You can test the first doors, you can test the first hatches, things like that. And you wind up getting very good at these sort of intermittent testings. You can test a whole floor at a time if you need to. So um, you wind up with some different practices for a smaller project versus a larger project, but it's all doable. Uh, Spencer, you you have uh, Shuko has, am I right? Shuko has some uh, products that are passive house certified available in the U.S. market. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I mean, essentially, what it is, it's a it's a qualification of the performance of that particular window frame with a specific glass composition, um, and then a few different installation methods that have been simulated. So. The frame systems that are certified uh, are frame systems that we can use, you know, in a variety of applications. It doesn't always have to be a passive house uh, right. project, but a big factor to that certified product is the glass. So, you know, the the certification of a passive house window system uh, really focuses on thermal performance, right? But the the air tightness criteria is equally important. And something that isn't really um, 
you know, there's no official standard for it in the way that we have, you know, with like the, the AMA testing and so forth of facade products. You know, I think coming at Passive House from a custom facade engineering uh, curtain walling background, there's definitely a familiarity and an expectation of this quality control with products to ensure that you're supplying something that's going to meet the requirements in the project specification, right? And what's interesting about Passive House is the the way you qualify the airtightness, you're typically testing almost all of the glazing on the project because you're doing these blower door tests and these blower door tests can sometimes encompass almost the whole building because you're going level by level, you're validating the air barrier construction at multiple points and usually that's picking up multiple openings, which is really a very different level of quality to be working towards, you know, then uh, the kind of the typical approach of mock-up testing, you know, intermittent fabrication testing, intermittent on-site testing that we typically see in the curtain walling business. And so what what's interesting is how that forces that additional level of quality control with everything that goes into that project from a glazing perspective, right? And that's that's totally separate from the product certification. You, know, you can have a, a certified product that that is fantastic in the model, but if it's not installed correctly, or if it's missing a certain element on the glazing bead that you know introduces a small air leak that could be detrimental in, in compromising the entire project. So these types of things are um, equally important, I would say. They have equal weight in, in the procurement process. So, so, so how does that manifest in your, uh, in your uh, project delivery, product delivery on a project, right? So if you've got, you've got one building that is not passive house, you've got another building that is passive house, you've got these products. How does the passive house uh, project become different than the other project uh, in terms of your responsibility or involvement in the project? With any project, you've got, um, let's say, a, a quality standard that you're trying to achieve, right? There's a certain expectation that you're, you're providing a piece of demonstration. It's going, to, it's going to perform to a certain level, you know, as identified in whatever format, whether it's building code, project specification, et cetera. So with Passive House, you you essentially have an additional level of, of requirements laid on top of, let's say, the conventional practice. And how does that manifest itself? In large part, it's with training, because whoever is ultimately responsible for putting in that window, the individual person, but down to the human level, the person who's putting it together on site, taping up that frame or putting in that final ceiling, needs to be 100% aware that they can't cut corners, right? There is no, there is no margin for error to say, oh, well, you know, I didn't quite get the sealant into place. That's fine because it's only the interior air barrier and I still have an exterior weather seal. And so what, what has happened with projects that we've been involved in is that the on-site quality control becomes like an entire training program that we put the, the people through who are actually the ones who are doing the work. And no, this, this is and exactly what I, what I wanted to get to. I, you know, yeah. I, I had the sense that there, I mean, is there, is there a formal passive house training program uh, that involves the trades, the installers, or mm -hmm. is that done on a case by case basis? So there, there are, um, there's a, a certified passive house trades person course and certification that you can achieve 
And this is really geared towards contractors and, and installers and builders who are the ones that are actually working with these conditions, right? And it gives them exposure to the, the overall criteria of passive house and, and more importantly, how that criteria applies to the field work that's being done and, and how to manage the integrity of those elements on site. Like the big one, the really the one of the biggest ones that's so different is the air barrier, right? And there, there's so much concern about the integrity of that air barrier because, you know, like Lois was alluding to, you don't always have access to it. You know, things that you can't see, you can't easily fix. Things that, you know, get buried under layers of other trades work, interior finishes, et cetera, you know, are, are problematic to fix after the fact when you're doing these blower door tests. And so, the air barrier is a great example of this. Typically, you know, on a pass-fails project, there is like a protocol for all trade to be aware that if there's a sensitive or potentially vulnerable air barrier, that it's it's called out. You know, it's it's immediately apparent when you walk on site that this is a this is a product or this is a, a membrane or something that you you cannot puncture. You know, and if you do puncture it, report it, not because you'll get in trouble, but because it needs to be fixed before it gets hidden. Right, and, and, and that's the kind of thinking that gets applied to the, the tradesperson approach um, and that certification. And there are other elements involved in it too about you know, understanding thermal bridge-free construction, um, understanding how to work with various insulated conditions, um, you know, corners and difficult um, assemblies. But it, it, it's really just a difference in thinking. It's a difference in the approach than conventional construction. Yeah, I get it. Um, I want to ask. Uh, that's that, that's kind of what I thought. That's that's great, Lois. Uh, you know, one of the things that I encounter uh, when I in, in the in the communications that I've been involved in with um, passive houses that there's a, 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 a sort of a, a, a perception uh, among a lot of people that passive house is relevant to. Um, cold climates, uh, you know, but, you know, if you're not, if, if you're in LA or you're in a more of a tropical climate or whatever, uh, that it, it's not appropriate or relevant in, uh, in, in such a climate, but you, the way that you guys have been talking, both of you, uh, there's a real awareness of climate and, you know, you're, you, you have been implying that the passive house standard can be applied in virtually any kind of climate. Am I reading that correctly? Is that true? Can you address this, this climate issue for me? Oh, sure. Um, anywhere you're going to use either heating or cooling, it will apply. Okay, so if you're, say, in San Diego with 70 degrees all year long and you don't need either of those, you're probably all right. But otherwise, you know, most of the places on this planet require some heating or cooling. Um, we did a, to, to answer your question pretty directly, we did a project in Sri Lanka, um, and it was a retrofit of a manufacturing, a textile manufacturing plant. And when you apply the Passivals principles to that building in that climate, that tropical climate, it's all about it, the techniques become different about it, achieving the goals, but it's it's the concepts are same, right? Comfort control, durability control, and then meeting some energy targets. And so for Sri Lanka, for that climate, it's about keeping the heat out of the building and managing humidity. So um, all things that you're supposed to do in any project for, you know, whatever. So it became a lot of... Um, uh, radiant, um, uh, reflective surfaces and, you know, light temperatures and, you know, 
better windows to keep heat out um, and, and, and the cooling in. Air tightness helped dramatically control the interior relative humidity to make sure that that moist, steamy air did not get into the building. Um, and so we wound up reducing that manufacturing plant's energy use from the previous year by 50%. And it, it, they used all the same manufacturing equipment that they had before we did the retrofit. What changed was the envelope and the mechanical conditioning equipment, the ERVs and the, the cooling equipment. And so that's a massive reduction if you're just looking at, you know, the envelope and, and mechanicals. So uh, for man manufacturing plants. So the principles can be applied to any climate anywhere in the world. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, okay, so let's let me diverge here, uh, and Lois, let me pose another question to you. So, one of the big uh, emerging dialogues that's of great interest to me is this whole embodied carbon thing. Uh, it's like we go along thinking we're doing better uh, in our buildings, and and you know, it seems like suddenly we peel back another layer of the onion, and there, there's this whole new uh, you know consideration that that changes just about everything. And uh, the embodied carbon uh, thing is kind of uh, in process right now doing that. Has, have you, do, do you consider uh, the embodied carbon footprint of the Passive House projects? I mean, what are your thoughts about that? So I think it's important to do, Passive House doesn't require it. They do have feelings about it. They do think that you should do it, but it's not part of the certification. Um, but as a as a company and and part of you know all of the cities that we work in all have these climate goals and these carbon reduction goals. So it's very much a part of what of what we recommend uh, when we do a design. Now that doesn't mean you're not going to see spray foam or rigid insulation on some of our pro projects. Sometimes that's the best material to use, right? But we do consider embodied carbon now, and there's a lot more tools coming out for use by the general public. Um, the uh, USGBC has one out now called, I believe it's e E3, something like that. Um, and it's EC3, thank you. And it, that's an embodied carbon tool so that you can assess your own projects and see where you can reduce the embodied carbon. It's a very important thing to, to evaluate. Do you, do you, I mean, a lot of, one of the things that, uh, that, uh, the issue of embodied carbon brings up is is service life. Do you does does Passive House define uh, a service life for the the envelopes that are Passive House certified? No, but their attention to moisture and condensation mm -hmm. is is sort of a ensuring and. That your your facade is going to last longer. It's going to be more durable, and it's going to last longer. Mm -hmm. So let me let me. Uh, th this has been really interesting. We're we're sort of at the tail end of our talk here right now. Uh, you guys have been brilliant. Let me let me throw one last thing on the table for uh, each of you to comment on. Uh, what what does what does Passive House in your experience have to teach? us about conventional building practices. Lois, you want to go first? Sure. I, I try to tell everybody there's there's no one way to do it. Conventional building practices can be used on any passive house. 
The difference is attention to detail. And that's all it is really. A little bit more insulation maybe, some better windows, but when it comes to the construction of a passive house building, you can use any materials you've used in the past. It's just, you know, we've got block and plank buildings. We've got steel stud buildings, you know, with concrete superstructures. We've got the mega panel that we used at Cornell, insulated concrete forms. Anything can be used. And we, and we try and let developers know, look, you need to tell us what your preferred method of construction is because that's going to be fastest and least expensive for them. And we will help you detail it in a way that you will meet the standard. Spencer? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really good insight. And I think it, my reflection on it is similar in that I think what it teaches us is that there are there are ways of, of building buildings that you know don't incorporate you know all of the kind of the nuance QAQC that passive house mandates. And even if you take a little bit of that, I think what it teaches us is that there are principles of passive house that can be applied to any project and will make it better. And that doesn't necessarily change the means and methods. You know, a lot of times the certification is a big goal for projects for you know, recognition and, and you know, advancing the cause. And I absolutely support that, you know, but the reality is you won't be able to achieve certification in every condition. You know, there are overlapping constraints due to site adjacencies, climates, budgets, things like that. And if you can apply these principles to the conventional construction, I think there's a lot to be gained. And, uh, and that's something that we can advocate. You just said that word budget, which reminds me that, uh, you know, one thing we definitely should address here uh, before we end this conversation is there also is a general general perception that Passive House is going to uh, add a potentially significant premium uh, to a project cost. Doris, you've done a lot of these, um, uh, Lois, you've done a lot of these, uh, sorry, these projects. Uh, and um, uh, what, what has your been, been your experience with, I mean, how would you characterize the cost premium that's uh, involved in these projects? Yeah, we get that question all the time. It's usually the number one question. What does it cost? Um, and, and the answer is a little bit squirrely because it depends on what your basis of construction usually is. Are you a really fast code built only builder or do you do lead silver or some other certification that is your base building? Where are you starting from in the budget? How far do we have to go? Now, having said that, for larger buildings with bigger budgets, it becomes a smaller and smaller percentage. So um, for our typical building type that we get, our typical size, I would say over 50,000 square feet up to several hundred thousand, the project cost increase is generally somewhere between three to 5%. And as they get bigger and bigger, it's probably down in the 2% range or lower. Some of that is still a fear factor from the contractors, not sure that they know how much extra work they're going to do if we're going to slow them down, that sort of thing. Um, and then um, part of it's just general additions, right? If you look at a multifamily project, let's say we're, we're dealing with a 20-story multifamily project. They don't typically use or they don't typically add supply ventilation to bedrooms and living rooms. It's usually exhaust-only systems in, in our area. Um, so adding supply 
ductwork is an ad, right? There's just, that's, mm -hmm. there's no way around it. The other ad generally is the windows because they're going to go from a double pane window to a very good triple pane window like Spencer's product. So that's, those are usually the two main ads. A lot of times our projects are already going with decent heating and cooling systems, so we don't have to improve those. And um, the insulation levels, as I said, are fairly close to code levels. It's just the detailing and the thermal breaks that's a little bit different. So, so you can see where the ad really isn't that huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, the, and the return extends for the full service life of the building, you know? That's Correct. Yeah. So are, do you have, uh, is it challenging in North America to get good high quality triple glazed products or have you been successful in doing that? Um, we, so when we started Cornell, it was very challenging. That was six years ago almost. Um, now, no, it's not challenging at all. I will say on the aluminum front, like Spencer's company specializes in a really good thermally broken aluminum window that we can get here in the United States. There's very few products in the aluminum category still that meet those requirements. Um, but having said that, there's fiberglass, there's UPVC, there's a number of other products that are just flooding the market now. And we are seeing prices come down drastically compared to what they were just five years ago. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's good to hear. So listen, this has been a great conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm sure our audience has thoroughly enjoyed it. Doris Arena, I want to thank you and Stephen Winter Associates for your participation in this. Spencer Colhane and Shuko USA, our gratitude to both of you and your companies. I encourage all of, all of you out there uh, listening to the program to check out what we're up to at the Facade Tectonics Institute, facadetectonics.org. Check it out. Uh, we'd love to have your participation. Let us know what you think about uh, this podcast and what you'd like to hear about in the future. Uh, we plan to have a series, an ongoing series uh, of these podcasts. So with that, I thank the both of you and um, we'll talk next time. 